Thank you for tuning in to the True Suspense podcast, free to listeners and with no interruptions from advertising. If you enjoy our podcast, all we ask is that wherever you listen, kindly follow or subscribe and leave a review. Please note that Season 2 contains some limited descriptions of physical violence, so listener discretion is advised. Buckle up and get ready for True Suspense. I'm Arthur Perlstein, and this True Suspense podcast is The Chloroform Capers. Here is part two, A Visit from a Vampire. The following information is based on court records, sworn testimony, and news coverage, including multiple articles by award-winning investigative journalist Courtney Stewart, who currently works for the CBS affiliate in Charlottesville. Her stories about the vampire, referred to in the title of this episode, began with an outstanding piece called Horror in the Hallway, which, along with her other articles on the subject, were published in a now-defunct weekly Charlottesville newspaper called The Hook. The year is 2004. In Charlottesville, a man named Michael Ayers like Chelsea Steiniger and Michael Mills eight years later, was down on his luck, close to the bottom rung of the economic ladder. Michael Ayers had been involved in a series of burglaries before being caught and serving ten years behind bars. He made a decision that when he emerged, he would do everything he could to turn his life around. He had embraced religion, and reported having spiritually recovered. Though he still found a difficult path to financial recovery, he worked hard to gain his footing, if nothing else, to support his young son. Michael had managed to get in good shape while in prison, and after his release he began to work out regularly at a local gym. That is where he made the acquaintance of a man named Kurt Kroboth, Kurt's situation was very different from Michael's. At the age of 49, he had long been towards the top rung of the economic ladder. Among his multiple degrees was a Master's in Business Administration from Columbia University. And Kurt was a man of the world, having lived and traveled extensively overseas, becoming fluent in French and Arabic. Married with two sons, Kurt was a successful financial consultant with specialties in areas such as mergers and acquisitions. An online business tracking site referred to Kurt's business as, quote, engineering, accounting, research, management, and related services with a focus on finance, unquote. Kurt had authored articles in various publications, served as an expert witness in court cases, and was regularly involved in putting together multi-million dollar deals. By 2004, Kurt and his wife owned two houses, 
one in Albemarle County, just outside Charlottesville, was 5,000 square feet with six bedrooms, five baths on almost five acres, worth over three quarters of a million dollars at the time. His salary from the previous year was in the neighborhood of $200,000. All who knew Kurt considered him a very smart man. Back in 1991, he made it through the arduous testing and screening process to be invited to appear as a contestant on the TV show Jeopardy. consultant who traveled throughout Asia and the Middle East in the mid-1980s and learned to speak Arabic is the first player we introduced on our program today, Kurt Krumoff. Did you learn to speak Arabic because of your work or because of an interest in that particular language? I had always been interested in it and I uh, am glad to say I managed to, after a course of about two months, uh, get good enough in it to speak with a few people. After making Kurt's acquaintance, Michael Ayers was in an auto accident in the spring of 2004. While he wasn't seriously injured, it put him back financially and left him without a car. When he happened to mention the accident in passing to Kurt at the gym, Michael was surprised at how sympathetic and interested he seemed. Kurt became more talkative, more friendly, and even expressed an eagerness to help. Michael was delighted that he seemed to have made a new friend. And a very generous friend, as it turned out. Kurt bought toys and clothes for Michael's young son. Over time, he even insisted on helping Michael pay some of his bills. And to top it off, realizing that Michael was now carless, Kurt bought him a used Audi. Some of Kurt's friends and neighbors have described what he did for Michael as consistent with his considerate and giving nature. Before too long, Kurt told Michael he had an opportunity for him to earn a quick $10,000. Michael was all ears. At least he was until Kurt gave him the details. The task would require Michael to commit a crime specifically murder. It would be easy, Kurt explained. He could give Michael all the resources he might need, including detailed instructions on how to do it without getting caught. The target, you see, was to be Jane Kroboth, Kurt's wife. Now, by that time in 2004, Jane and Kurt had been married for 18 years. They had two boys, ages 13 and 14. Jane had been a stay-at-home mom, but involved herself in various volunteer activities, including in support of autistic children. Neither Jane nor Kurt was originally from Virginia. They lived in California at the time of their marriage, and Kurt was originally from Wisconsin. But when they moved to the Charlottesville area in the 1990s, the Kroboths went all in. The expansive home I mentioned earlier had been their dream house. The couple was very much involved in its design, and the two became active in the community. As the new millennium dawned, 
Cracks began to emerge in the seemingly idyllic marriage of the Krobos. The couple agreed things needed to change, and in 2001, they decided to pursue Kurt's idea of becoming swingers. Each would separately enjoy flings in a newly open relationship designed to rekindle the best days of their marriage. Courtney Stewart reported in The Hook that, quote, Kroboth was aggressive in his search for new mates, unquote. He became a regular on major internet dating sites, and Kurt was not secretive about his marital status. To one prospective romantic partner, for example, he wrote as follows, quote, Married 15 years, happy enough, but not quite satisfied. I miss the excitement experienced in the first stages of a new relationship, unquote. During the course of the following year, three things happened. First, Jane determined she was not cut out to be a swinger, what with two children and all. Second, Kurt had, by his reckoning, quote, fallen in love with one of the women he had met online. And finally, near the end of 2002, Kurt and Jane decided to live separately, together purchasing a new home for Kurt to live in on St. Clair Avenue, about four miles away in the northeast area of Charlottesville proper. About a year after starting to live separately, Kurt and Jane seriously discussed getting back together. But in the end, Jane decided to file for divorce. Things soon turned very bitter. On an interim basis, Jane had primary custody. The boys continued to live with her, though a shared custody arrangement allowed Kurt to have the boys with him frequently. One point of contention was Jane's insistence that Kurt not have his girlfriend around when the boys came to his house. In the summer of 2004, a support hearing was held in domestic relations court. The judge ordered Kurt to pay over $6,000 a month to Jane. Kurt was livid to learn that Jane would be getting substantially more of his after-tax income than he himself would. The divorce was due to become final on November 6th, just a few months later. Kurt weighed what that would mean. As of that date, he would lose half of his assets, be forced to pay large sums to Jane monthly, possibly for the rest of his life, and Jane would permanently gain primary custody over the boys. The prospect sickened Kurt, and he began to think of little else in the months following the July hearing. Before long, Kurt reached the conclusion that he had to do away with Jane before the divorce became final. That was when he became friends with Michael Ayers and began to shower him with gifts and financial assistance. He waited to gain Michael's confidence before making the $10,000 murder-for-hire proposition. But that was where Michael drew the line. 
He told Kurt he would do almost anything for him, so grateful was he for his generosity. But Michael was emphatic that he would not commit murder for Kurt, regardless of the amount offered. He had worked hard at rehabilitating himself and was both morally opposed and unwilling to risk the freedom he had come to value so highly. Besides, at first, Michael was not even sure Kurt was really serious. He became more convinced, however, when he later learned from a friend that he, too, had received a similar offer for the murder of Jane Kroboth. He, too, had declined. Kurt felt betrayed. With all he had done for Michael, he figured it was most ungrateful for Michael to refuse his offer. As the summer of 2004 drew to a close, Kurt made what would eventually turn out to be a most costly mistake. He went to the police station and accused Michael of stealing the car he had given him. According to Charlottesville police officer Phil Waffle, a veteran on the force for over 30 years, Kurt complained that Michael kept calling and harassing him. Waffle quoted Kurt as saying, All I want to do is get my car back, and he won't give it to me. Originally from Kansas, Waffle was calm and measured as a policeman. Rather than escalate what he figured was more of a damaged friendship than a crime, the officer decided to try and work out a resolution between the parties. He arranged to go with Kurt and meet Michael at the Lucky Seven on Market Street, the same convenience store where, eight years later, Chelsea Steiniger would accept a ride in a white van. After some conversation, Officer Waffle reported that Michael simply said, quote, You can have the thing back. Just let me get my stuff. And he proceeded to remove his belongings, including some children's toys, from the car. And that was that, at least as far as Kurt was concerned. He got in the Audi and drove off. For Michael, however, that was not the end of the conversation. As Officer Waffle later recounted, Michael stayed behind and, quote, he was telling me how this guy, Kroboth, had come to him and asked him if he wanted to make some money, unquote. Michael proceeded to tell the officer about Kurt's offer for the murder of his wife. Waffle took careful notes and returned to the nearby police station, where he filed a detailed report of Michael's allegations. Though the report was received by the officer's command, for some reason, there was no further investigation at the time, which would later lead to a lawsuit against the police department. Meanwhile, Kurt soon concluded that if he wanted something done about Jane, he would have to do it himself. He decided to proceed with the so-called foolproof plan he had previously proposed to Michael. The strategy involved going to the house on Terrell Avenue, rendering Jane unconscious, carrying the much smaller woman to the master bathroom, filling the tub, depositing Jane in the water, and slitting her wrists. 
had it appeared on the Jeopardy board as an answer, the correct question would have been, what is to make it look like a suicide? Kurt thought through the requirements very carefully. He would have to get to Jane's place without arousing suspicion as he headed there. He would need a disguise in case he was spotted. He would have to enter the house when Jane would likely be asleep. He would need to quickly get Jane back to sleep if he awakened her and ensure that she could not escape or call police. In addition to his MBA from Columbia, Kurt also held a master's degree in film. It may have been a movie plot he had in mind as he formulated the details. What better night to wear a disguise without causing suspicion than Halloween? And the timing was perfect, as the divorce would not be finalized for another week, allowing Kurt to keep all the assets and avoid any payments. And what better way to subdue his wife quickly and quietly than with a chloroform-soaked rag? Five nights before Halloween, Kurt Kroboth went shopping at Walmart. A large variety of costumes and masks were available in a special seasonal aisle of the store, and he was far from alone among the customers examining the spooky merchandise. Kurt quickly found just what he wanted, a particularly frightening vampire mask that would completely cover the face and much of the head as well. He also picked up a small pack to wear around his waist before proceeding to check out. It was very late on an unseasonably warm, moonlit Halloween night when a vampire made his way towards the home on the Terrell Avenue acreage. In the small pack around his waist, he carried latex gloves, a small flashlight, a knife, and a jar of chloroform with a cloth rag soaking in it. It was a quarter to four in the morning when he arrived at the property. Jane was fast asleep, as were the two Kroboth boys whom Kurt had left at his place where they were staying on a regular visit. This particular vampire, of course, was very familiar with the layout and every feature of the home, having lived there with his family for several years. Before going in, he cut both the power and the phone lines to the house. Upon entering, he removed the lid from the jar and pulled out the soaked rag. Then he crept very quietly up to the master bedroom and opened the door. Jane was sleeping very soundly. There was a deadly silence before the masked man began his work. We'll talk about the attack in an upcoming episode of the Chloroform Capers. In the very next installment, however, we will return to the year 2012 and learn of the search for the man in the white van and of what happened at his trial in Episode 3, A Question of Justice. The Chloroform Capers is a production of True Suspense Podcasts, written 
and narrated by me, Arthur Perlstein. Music, sound engineering, and post-production by Guy Bainbridge and Walls End Studios. Be sure to visit truesuspense.com for more information about this podcast and other True Suspense productions.